0: Producing Crime is a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Ed McGuire is a Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University, where he directs the Public Safety Innovation Lab. We chat about the challenges involved in policing protests and demonstrations, and balancing an appropriate response in highly dynamic situations. Welcome, I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. In the last episode, the guest theme was Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a hilarious and an award-winning American police procedural comedy. The theme you just heard was from a short-lived cop series from the 1970s that had two seasons, and if the opening titles are anything to go by, probably two seasons too many. I mean, the opening credits are just laughably bad. If you can't guess the show already, I will tell you next episode. But when you figure it out, please, just go and watch the opening credits on YouTube. I mean, hilariously awful. Just a van driving slowly down a road and a bunch of cops leaping about in almost cartoon ninja style. Speaking of ninjas, for this episode I chatted to the owner and head instructor of the Cactus Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Scottsdale, Arizona. Don't roll your eyes like that, people. It's called a Segway, and yeah, not a very good one. You may, however, know Ed McGuire from his day job where he directs the Public Safety Innovation Lab at Arizona State University in Phoenix, and is a recognized expert in the policing of protests and demonstrations. Prior to moving to Arizona in 2016, he worked for the United Nations, the Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, that's the COPS office, and both George Mason and American Universities. He chairs the Research Advisory Board for PERF, the Police Executive Research Forum, has a PhD from SUNY Albany, and is the author of over 70 research articles and other publications, including a new co-authored book called Policing Protests, Lessons from the Occupy Movement and Beyond. In this episode, he tells me about protest policing, graded responses, comparisons between British and American approaches, and Swedish innovations. Don't get excited, it's not that kind of podcast. I learn what transfer of grievance means, and no, it doesn't involve my ex-wife, and also discover what happens when an academic, a protester, and a rabbi walk into, well, you'll find out. We caught up online, of course, because, you know, this whole pandemic thing. Your work, in, especially in the area of, around protest policing, has suddenly become really important, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, here and in your home country.
0: Well, I don't know where home is anymore, really. I'm a bit of a, I think I'm a bit of a mongrel-type nomad, really. I've no idea where home is. Where am I paying bills for? That's that's the place I feel most responsible for. Out of interest, how did you get into this area?
1: When I was a professor at American University, it was during the Occupy movement, and several of my graduate students were disturbed by what they were observing on the evening news with police responding to protests in New York City, at the University of California at Davis. And uh, so one day I said to them, I said, you know, we've got an Occupy encampment just down the road. We can... Take a walk down the street and, and and go visit the protesters and see what we can learn. So we did that.
0: That's a bit radical. You being an academic and actually wanting to get out of the <laughs> out of the office and go and see stuff. Crazy stuff. That puts right? you in like a tiny percentage of academics who actually leave the office. So good for you.
1: <laughs> but one of the interesting things that happened, it was quite unexpected. Like much of what happens in our careers, is that when we started talking to the protesters about their experiences with police, some of them started sobbing. Good grief. And it almost looked like a post-traumatic stress response or something like that. true, And it was that response that I think led us to investigate further.
0: And so you've been working in this area for a decade now then. There's a part of me that looks at how protest policing has emerged in the US over the last, probably seven or eight years. I mean, it really came to my notice during the Occupy Wall Street movement when I was thinking, oh wow, this is a really different kind of thing because Growing up in Britain and being a police officer in the UK in the 80s and the 90s, you either had a riot or you had planned demonstrations and marches, which is what the majority are. But now we've got these kind of hybrid things that crop up and then can, like Occupy Wall Street, can just be around for ages. It seemed like a decade ago, everything changed.
1: Yeah, I think that you know one of the great challenges in these more recent events, including Occupy Wall Street, is you don't have one or the other. It's not a black and white world in the sense of you don't have a peaceful protest or a riot oftentimes you have little bits of both, right? And so you have these events where people are mostly peaceful, but you've got a handful of people who are behaving destructively or engaging in violence. And those tend to be the events that police find to be the most challenging.
0: And have you found that there are definite kind of groups of people in crowds who are looking to provoke a reaction, who are looking to provoke police? Is that common?
1: It is common. You've got folks who show up with intention from the beginning of behaving in a destructive or violent or provocative manner. And then you've got a a set of folks who may end up not having decided to behave that way until they get into the midst of the event. And, you know, there's some sort of... They get caught up in the moment. Well, I don't know if it's just that they get caught up in the moment. You know, that's what we talk about a lot with contagion theories, where, you know, people get all caught up in the moment and you know, sort of become powerless to resist the urge to to do crazy stuff. I normally need alcohol for that. (laughs) But more often than not, what we find, and this is where social science has been really helpful, most of it coming out of the, the UK originally, is that how the police behave at these events can actually play a powerful role in stimulating people to behave destructively or violently. So uh,
0: is it the case that you can't really tell how a demonstration or a protest is going to go beforehand? You see police departments, some turning up in just you know casual uniform and then others where they come kind of preloaded. It seems that people are trying to guess it beforehand and trying to anticipate what the likely outcome is. But in actual fact, they're driving those outcomes.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes they're driving those outcomes by how they choose to respond. I mean, one of the things that that I spend a lot of time talking to police leaders about is trying not to be surprised. And so really doing a good job of mining intelligence, you know, including just open source intel from Twitter and Parler and these other kinds of networks.
0: It's horribly underrated, the capacity for just reading what is freely and openly available. It's a lost skill, the intelligence gathering seems to be. People seem to have forgotten about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think even the Capitol, I put out a tweet the night before the Capitol riot that said, look out, folks, you know, you've got people on parlor talking about behaving violently and tomorrow's going to be a civil war. You know, I didn't have access to any inside information.
0: This is the Capitol riot of... uh 6th of January 2021, right?
1: Yes, yes. And so people were... That was a moment, wasn't it? That was quite an interesting time. Bet your phone blew up after that, didn't it? Indeed it it did. Indeed it did. But, you know, folks were telling us what they were going to do openly on Parler and Facebook and other, other social media sites.
0: People talk shit all the time on Twitter and social media sites, and they often don't usually don't follow through. So what made the Capitol riot different?
1: I think the chatter before the Capitol riot was really significantly more abundant than what we typically see in protests that turn violent.
0: So there was either an intelligence failure not recognizing that or a policy failure not acting on it?
1: or an intelligent sharing failure. I think the intel was out there, it's just whether it got to the right people within the Capitol Police and other uh, other agencies in the DC area.
0: So, you know, you've made the comparison to the UK. I mean, I remember going to a lot of demonstrations and protests and marches in the 1980s and the 1990s, You when you're a police officer during the Thatcher era, it became kind of de rigueur. So I feel like the UK learned a lot, but it's hard to tell when you look at social media these days, but are you saying that British approach is something that we've learned from here?
1: It's a mixed bag. And so you've got some police forces that I think are really world leaders in this area. Such as? Uh, Probably the West Yorkshire Police, for instance. But you've got others that, uh, including the London Metropolitan Police, that really are not even acting on their own guidance, right? Like, I mean, I think the London Metropolitan Police a decade ago had really learned a lot about how to handle these events. And just even in the last few days, we've seen examples where they're sort of going against their own lessons. And and we see this in both countries, in the US and in the UK, where, you know, you have this ebb and flow, doing pretty well for a while, and then they revert back to some old negative practices that I think really hurt their legitimacy. Yeah,
0: it was interesting having observed police departments during the Occupy movement actually come out of things really well with decent public perception. And some departments just managed to screw it up royally. What were the lessons that we learned from that?
1: I learned some really important lessons from just talking to police leaders from across the country. I I got a Justice Department grant just after the Occupy movement to go around the country and talk to police leaders about what they learned from that event. And it was really interesting. You know, some of the police leaders said um, they were really happy that Occupy came to them a little bit later than it came to some other sites because they were able to look on CNN and see how other departments were messing it up. You know, a lot of them talked about just even talking to their officers, police chiefs talking to their officers saying, let's not make any viral videos, right? Like, let's not be caught, you know?
0: So uh, roll call videos, it's basically, let's just show CNN and everybody say, let's not do that exactly,
1: shit. Exactly, exactly. Right. <laughs>
0: Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Is that the learning mechanism to 21st century policing? This is how we're learning? It's like watching the television going, oh, that doesn't look good. Yeah,
1: yeah we, we we don't want to look like that. And unfortunately, in the United States, we're in a moment right now where the capital insurrection is probably on the minds of every police chief in the country. And they don't want to they don't want to be caught in a moment like that. And so in that ebb and flow that we talked about, you know, now we're at risk of things getting worse again because there's a, a tendency to over-respond following dramatic under-responses like we just saw in DC.
0: And it's not even an over-response, it's an over-preparation. Because it's not really a response, right? Because you're almost coming with all the militarization and with all the hardware and the riot shields and all this kind of stuff before any demonstrations even happened.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so what we've learned from a lot of the research coming out of the crowd psychologists in the UK is that when police respond that way initially, they often end up provoking the response that they're looking to prevent.
0: I seem to remember that we did spend a lot of time putting just uniforms out with the crowd, but having van loads of the heavy mob around the corner with all the equipment as necessary, but out of sight.
1: Yeah, and that's what we recommend. I think you know when you put officers dressed in full riot gear at a largely peaceful protest, it really angers protesters and ends up leading to some people sort of rebelling.
0: So the concept that I think some in policing think we have to turn up with a show of force to quell trouble has exactly the reverse effect.
1: Yeah, we've got 60 years of crowd psychology research suggesting that that mode of thinking is just, some crowd psychologists called it not only wrong, but dangerously wrong. Well, speaking
0: of dangerously, then, at what point do you flick the switch? Because at some point you have to worry about officer safety in these environments, right?
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things that that we talk about is is having a graded response plan where officers sort of gear up as the need arises. And so, you know, when people start throwing things, which police refer to as airmail, So when you start seeing airmail, you know, it's probably time to put helmets on. And as things start to worsen, you know, you start rotating in officers who have heavier gear. And this all needs to be trained and choreographed, right? Like this isn't something that can just happen on the fly without practice.
0: Do police departments do decent training around this area? They do terrible training around this area. Well, that's good to know. (laughs) Um, It's is this you know we're right in the middle of discussions around defunding policing but if we ever decide to reverse that idea this seems to be one of the areas where it would be in everybody's benefit the police and the public for an increase in police training right
1: i agree you know i've looked at training materials for some large cities in the u.s i've I've looked at training materials put out by federal government agencies who train local police on these issues and you know, some of the things that these training materials say about crowds remind me of outdated ideas from like the 1890s or 1900s. I don't know where they come up with this stuff. You can tell a criminal by measuring the size of his head. <laughs> we have the equivalent of that kind of thinking in protest policing.
0: But we also don't like to learn from other people. We feel it's like a, it's an admission of our own failure. You know, police departments in the U.S. say, well, we really need to learn from West Yorkshire police, a police department that they probably never even heard of.
1: Right. And it's difficult to change the way people think about these things, and particularly in this case, because of the officer safety issues. So the concern is that if we, you know, follow this kind of new thinking about how to handle crowds that our officers are going to get hurt. And what I'm constantly telling police leaders is your officers are going to get more hurt doing what you're doing now than adopting these newer ideas.
0: Yeah, I think for some people that's a tough lesson because they know best, right? Because you're an academic, what do you know, right?
1: Right, exactly. Which is why I think, you know, having practitioners be a part of that change effort is what's absolutely needed.
0: You know, not just practitioners, but I think people have to listen to the research a little bit more. I think that's really important. Plus also you get on the ground. I mean, I follow you on Twitter and, and you've had your moments out there on the street, being on the receiving end of some, uh, well, let's say percussive management. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a tough industry to, to both study protests and to cover them as a journalist because you end up with lungfuls of tear gas and sometimes being struck by less lethal weapons. Officers come by and shove you back. And, and this is even when you're attempting to comply. And so there's not a lot of differentiation at some of these events between uh, bad actors and people who are just there for peaceful purposes.
0: And if I recall correctly, you've taken a rubber bullet round, haven't you?
1: I took a pepper ball round about half inch above one of my eyes. And so I'll be forever grateful that uh, it missed ever so closely my eye. I think I probably would have lost the eye.
0: Yeah, I've been on the receiving end and seen a lot of pepper spray. Within 10 minutes of being on duty, I finished my field training and joined my shift. And we got called to a nightclub around the corner from the police station, which is awfully convenient. And I went inside and I'd never experienced pepper spray before. And in this nightclub on night shift, somebody had sprayed pepper spray in the place. There'd been a massive fight. A bunch of girls grabbed me, dragged me into the women's toilets. And uh, there's a guy covered in blood. He's got half a beer glass in the side of his face. There's pepper spray throughout the whole place. CS gas. And I remember thinking, I flip love this job. This <laughs> is going to be great. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was particularly concentrated in a nightclub. But is it really that effective in the outdoors, which is where police departments tend to be using it these days?
1: Well, I mean, it certainly makes people back up. The problem with it is it's not very targeted, right? So you're not just spraying the people who are engaging in illegal behavior. You're also often spraying people who haven't done anything wrong. Some of the protests I've attended, people who got sprayed are in wheelchairs. They're elderly. They're children. This is not okay. We can do better than this.
0: And again, I'm sure it takes the moderate people in the crowd, and it flips them to being anti-police.
1: That's exactly right. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We call that process, actually, this language comes from the UK, um, but we call that process the transfer of grievance. And in all of my teaching and training on this topic with police, I say your ultimate measure here is if people come to a protest and it's not about you, don't do anything that makes it become about you. That's a simple concept to understand.
0: You'd think so, right? So, when, so what you're saying is when people are going to protest around school closures or the environment, just chill out and be part of the crowd and just facilitate freedom of expression, right?
1: Exactly. And let them stay focused on what they're focused on. And so what we saw during the Occupy movement was a movement that had nothing to do with the police initially, almost entirely turned against the police because how police handled those events.
0: What about situations where the police are the target? So thinking about George Floyd. So the last year has been an
1: interesting one indeed, sir. Um, and so <laughs> You are the master of
0: understatements.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, since George Floyd's death, you know, you've got people out there protesting against police brutality. And what they experience when doing that is police brutality. And so you're sort of reinforcing the reason for the protest in the first place. And where we see this in its most just dramatic form is in Portland, Oregon. So what's made Portland so special? I think police have responded to protests in Portland in a particularly violent and unwise manner. And by doing that, essentially what they're doing is they're guaranteeing that there will be a protest the next night. And so then they go out the next night and do the same thing. And sort of they're guaranteeing that protests will continue to be held. If we can handle these types of events using de-escalation, using research evidence, trying to calm people down, be very sort of targeted when we use any type of force, we can kind of let things simmer down. But when we keep behaving violently, it ends up perpetuating the protests.
0: I think officers have struggled with trying to figure out how to police, you know, the incidents around Michael Brown and Ferguson and George Floyd. When the protests and the demonstrations are about police, even if it's not police in your town, I mean, I'm in Philadelphia, you're in Arizona. For both of us, I think Minneapolis was about a thousand miles away, but it seemed very local, if that made sense.
1: Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people don't truly understand the nature of policing in the United States. I mean, even my students sometimes refer to American policing as the police force, as if there's just one, right? And so there is that tendency in the public to think of policing as this monolith. And so if police in Minneapolis did something wrong, they're probably doing that same thing in my city.
0: I think even in big departments what you can end up with is it feels like that there are 20 police departments within one police department because again it's like the crowd isn't it you just don't have that homogeneity of perspective
1: yeah exactly and and we see differences across shifts we see differences across precincts indeed
0: have you seen examples where it's been done well when police departments have successfully managed a crowd that contains both for want of a term agitators who want to start trouble with the police and a whole crowd of people who come with a legitimate grievance.
1: Yeah, you know, in our national study of the Occupy movement, we saw that a lot. So in Boston, for instance, just really targeted, you know, anytime they chose to take enforcement action, it was not enforcement action against the entire crowd. It was really targeted toward people who are behaving violently or destructively. Salt Lake City, we saw the same thing. Saw some of that in Milwaukee. I mean, I think there were several departments where police chiefs sent out the right message. And I think officers followed the guidance issued by their chiefs.
0: Do you know if they were doing more training, given that officers are going into what can be a very stressful situation, having been in a number of disorderly protests and riots? When you're right in the middle of it, it's a thing.
1: Yeah. And so they absolutely have to train these kinds of things. And particularly if they adopt that graded response model I was talking about, because it's no easy feat to rotate officers out, you know, either to put on riot gear or to put on some intermediate level of of protection, like a helmet, maybe a a longer riot baton, um, and then rotate them out again to put on full riot gear if things head in that direction and warrant it. All that needs to be choreographed and trained and very carefully practiced so that it can be executed under stress.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about what you're saying, and it absolutely makes sense. But once you start bringing out long sticks and stuff like that, I just wonder at that point—is it even possible for a police department to come out of this looking good? It kind of feels like it's there's going to be just variations of how bad do you want the department to look, and that's as as best you can do.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. You know, one of the things I appreciate about how the Swedish police are handling things—some UK forces are—you know—they're putting officers out in the crowd. Uh, they're wearing different colored vests. These folks are out there trying to sort of calm things down. So you don't have just the one response. You've got officers who are you know more armored up, but you've also also got officers who are out there in the crowd trying to keep people calm trying to talk to people trying to de-escalate lots of communication and american police are resisting those types of approaches for officer safety reasons
0: yeah that's an interesting one for officer safety reasons and and i get it certainly after george floyd having seen erica shields for example out walking in the crowd surrounded by a lot of very angry people as a result of you know george floyd and there's a lot of genuine anger kicking around with that I mean, you run a martial arts studio. I mean, if you were with me, I'd be fine. I wouldn't have any problem with that at all. But out there on my own in a very, very angry crowd, um, even though I'm the nicest guy in the world, I would certainly have some concerns. Will you come and be my bodyguard if it ever gets to that? Can I can, can I just hire you as a bouncer? Happy to do it, sir. Um, but, you know,
1: what's interesting is when you... T- what's, your, what's your dojo cover? Oh, we're cactus jiu-jitsu. We teach Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> hanging around with you. Yeah, a little bit of capoeira training. There we go. There you go. But yeah, when we talk to officers who do this kinds of work, I mean, certainly there are moments when they're afraid and they, you know, make the choice to exit the crowd for officer safety reasons. But, you know, a lot of times they, they turn out to be the middlemen, if you will, between the protesters and the rest of the officers. They're the people who are out there, you know, handling the negotiation and the communication and they often tell me that they feel very comfortable being out there. And and if they're not comfortable, they exit the crowd and go back behind the line of police officers. But, you know, there are people who I think are very good at this kind of work and are meant to do it. It's not something I think you can just assign to anybody. you got to pick the right people.
0: And it sounds to me like it's something that a chunk of crowd psychology training and understanding is going to be essential.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I was talking with with a sergeant from a, a pretty big police department here in the U.S. a couple of weeks ago, and and what he wanted to do is he wanted to check to see if he understood the crowd psychology if he if he was getting it right because he's training his officers on it and what I really appreciated about it was he took everything I was saying and he put it in cop language. It was amazing. I thought he did a great job of it.
0: You should get yourself a copy of that. Absolutely. It sounds like it's gold. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's the, the hard part with this, right? Because once you start using terms like crowd psychology and the transfer of grievance, right, you just know that a bunch of cops who have just done a whole pile of night shifts and a, a bunch of overtime who are sleep-derived, they haven't had enough coffee, the kids are playing up, all sorts of dramas going on. They just can look at you like, what? you <laughs>
1: Well, you know, Jerry, you've worked in a lot of police departments and man, we need translators sometimes. We need people who can take what we teach and put it in a different language that not only the cops understand, because I think they understand what I'm talking about, but he put it in a language that almost made it seem silly not to do this. Like if you're smart and you want to remain safe in these types of events, you should do what the professor is suggesting. And here's why.
0: Yeah, he sounds like a good potential uh, police pracademic in terms of finding that balance between policing. In the academic world. And I think you have a winning argument when you start dressing it up in terms of officer safety because everybody does want to go home at the end of the day. That would be nice, right?
1: Yep, I think that's right. Is there a difference
0: between how to think about managing kind of pop-up demonstrations as opposed to planned demonstrations? At least with planned demonstrations, we manage those better, right? Please tell me we do
1: for sure because we have intel leading up to the event that helps us shape our response to the event. And so with these pop-up demonstrations, the, the capital
0: riot insurgency notwithstanding.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we had one right here in Scottsdale, Arizona, where there are not a lot of riots, but we had a riot this summer, and uh, and it, it you know it came very suddenly and it it took the police department by surprise uh, through no fault of theirs.
0: Well, it's a bit like a music festival. Everything happens in the summer, right? You only deserve yours. There you go. What was the riot over? It was
1: kind of. Related to George Floyd, but honestly, it was more just people breaking into stores and breaking windows. And it was just more destructive than principled. More destructive than principled sounds a little bit like my Twitter feed. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, what a lot of police departments face with these is resource issues. And so, you know, in New York City, I mean, any protest I've ever been to in New York City they're typically deploying more officers to a single event than most police departments in the United States even employ. You know, they're not having to think about mutual aid and these kinds of issues. But for most police departments, like here in Scottsdale, just simply getting enough bodies there to deal with these events, particularly when they are pop-up events like that, it can be a real challenge.
0: I'm sure once you start also calling for aid from other police departments, that just Increases the capacity for confusion because you've got people on different radio networks, you've got different uniforms, you've got different operating structures. So people are turning up to help out, but I'm sure it just adds to the confusion, right?
1: Absolutely. And it's a, it's a big problem with these types of events because in Ferguson, for instance, there were nearly 60 police agencies that responded to the protests and riots after the the death of Michael Brown.
0: I'm sure they're all bringing their own perspective of what the crowd is going to be like, their own equipment, and how they're going to approach things before they've even turned up in the town.
1: Absolutely, and so you have dramatic differences in training and equipment, in uh, you know ability to communicate via different radio systems and so forth. And you know, I think one reporter got it right. A beautiful quote. He said it was a mishmash of tactics and confusion. You know, one of these police departments had dogs. Look, we learned the lesson 60 years ago in the United States. You're not going to have dogs chasing after a bunch of African-American protesters. It's not good.
0: I mean, I've only been in the States 20 years, but I saw those photographs about a week after I arrived. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe a, a confusion should be the collective noun for police departments whenever they gather together in herds of more than three.
1: But you've got agencies and and I think the Washington, D.C. area is a perfect example, you know, because in Washington, D.C., there's a protest nearly every day right? We don't hear about most of them, but there's virtually always protests in Washington, D.C. And, you know, these agencies working together in Washington, D.C., it's a regular phenomenon. And so when mutual aid requests go out in that metro area, it's a common thing. In Ferguson, Missouri, not so much.
0: So in D.C., with all the experience they had, does that almost sort of compound the errors that might have been made? And I'm not looking I'm not looking to Monday morning quarterback people and get anybody fired, but it does did seem to go south kind of quickly when people are saying they knew a lot about what was going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there were political pressures on the agencies involved in these events in terms of trying to manage the optics and not letting police do what police do. I think if police were left to their own devices to handle these types of events without the political pressures that they were facing, very intense political pressures, I think we would have seen a better response in DC. I mean, it, it seemed
0: that they, the police departments weren't tooled up with all the right equipment. So at least they they started with the right approach, though they've been criticized for almost being too friendly with the crowd. Was that a reasonable critique or is that more people playing politics?
1: I think it was an unreasonable critique. I think the reasonable critique here is at an event like this you want to have multiple layers behind the curtain in case something goes wrong and in this case there was nothing who was that attorney general that had a semi-naked statue of ashcroft that's right yeah and he covered up the yeah john
0: Ashcroft covered up a semi-naked statue that's the only thing that's behind a curtain (laughs) mate (laughs) Yeah, you were saying there's nothing There's nothing else behind.
1: Yeah, there's nothing else behind the curtain. And so, you know, you. we always say, you know, you hope for the best and plan for the worst. I think they hoped for the best yeah. and they just didn't plan for the worst. And so when the worst started to happen, there was no more assets behind the curtain to bring in and, and help deal with this event.
0: Yeah, at least a, a lot of the stuff that I went to in London, you know, we may have been walking with a crowd, but we know the, uh, the TSG were a couple of blocks away. Yeah. So things went south. We could pull back and... People who've got a chunk more training and a lot more equipment could be wheeled into position. And that's how we need to approach these things. And I don't know
1: why we're still having to learn that lesson.
0: Yeah, that distinction for me is is really important. When there's a failure of planning, that seems to be a, a huge error. But it also seems that it strikes me that things go so much better when there's also planning on the demonstrator side as well. I mean, I, I policed a lot of these things in central London back in the late 80s and the, the early 90s. I think my favourite was having to do a spend a Saturday and a Sunday. The Saturday was a student union protest which was absolutely chaotic, not least of which because was the wind was blowing hard and these guys had a massive banner and there was a headwind and they were just not making any progress because the, you know they were trying to go two steps forward and the wind was just blowing them back. And then on the Sunday it was gay pride. And those guys were just in great shape. The banner had slits in it to let the wind through. They were heading down the road. They knew where the route was. They had the post parade cocktail location planned out. The gay guys had it all squared (laughs) away. It was
1: fantastic. (laughs) Made it nice and easy for you.
0: Absolutely. And I was just impressed at the level of organization and we've got our goals. This is what we want to do. And the students were just a mess, which doesn't surprise anybody, I suspect. But also that level of disorganization created much more of an environment for, for chaos and for more people to get hurt, which is what happened. Should we be spending more time educating demonstrators on how to
1: demonstrate well? Does that sound contradictory? No, I think it's a great idea. The problem that police and demonstrators are dealing with right now is people who can help protesters... Remain peaceful, actually come under great pressure from fellow protesters who view them as sellouts. And so these intermediaries between the police and the more extremist protesters actually end up coming to lose the trust of their fellow protesters if they go too far. There's a whole literature in crowd psychology on stimulating uh, within crowds the ability for self control. And so police communicating with crowd members and crowd leaders and so forth, and using those people, much like Lorraine Mazerolle and, and Janet Ransley talked about with third-party policing, this idea of getting other people to sort of act on your behalf and, and help you. Uh, we can do that in, in, in a crowd situation.
0: That's a great example, having place managers, using people who already have trust and relationships and knowledge to actually help convey your message.
1: The problem with this approach on the ground is that police often will blame the intermediary if things go wrong, but this is not a formal organization. You know, there's not a hierarchy within the protest crowd. The intermediaries are often just doing the best that they can, and sometimes people don't listen to them. And so these communication networks are kind of fragile, and I think both on the police and on the protest side, we need to work really hard to keep those communication channels open. Is that because...
0: I mean, reading some of your work in preparation for this, and that's going to surprise a lot of people that actually do one read and two prepare, is that this notion that crowds take on different identities. So is is it possible to anticipate who those people are likely to be and work on those people or to marginalize them before they start creating problems? I mean, we want to encourage the people that are supportive of lawful, safe protesting and demonstrations, right?
1: Yeah, you know, we just need to be really careful in having police work with those people while not expecting them to work miracles. There are going to be people in the crowd who don't listen to them. So I'll share a quick story with you, Jerry. I was observing the Occupy Wall Street protests in New York City uh, at the six month anniversary of the movement. And I attended a meeting of protesters. And a rabbi came to speak at the event. I'm sorry, this is starting to sound like a really bad joke. Exactly right. (laughs) An academic, a rabbi and a protester walk into New York. Yeah. So the rabbi delivered this beautiful, beautiful talk on the importance of remaining nonviolent during protest. And, you know, very sort of Gandhian. And really amazing talk. And while he was talking, two fights broke out in the audience among people who disagreed with his message. Brilliant. So these <laughs> these protests, these protest groups are not homogeneous. And there are really powerful debates among protesters about whether it's a legitimate form of protest to be violent or to damage property or to steal things.
0: Right. I mean, there is a perspective that you don't get on the news, which is what people want to amplify their cause unless you are throwing a trash can through a Starbucks window.
1: Exactly. And so we really, really want police to focus in on those people who are behaving violently or destructively. Laser-like precision on those folks, whilst simultaneously allowing people behaving peacefully to continue doing so. But does that really
0: work? I mean, once you start forming just like a quick snatch squad to dive into the crowd and pick out one or two people, Haven't
1: you lost at that point? Not yet. If there's communication that accompanies it, that tells the crowd, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, you know, as long as you're behaving peacefully, you can continue to do so, then it works. If you do it without communication, then rumors spread, and all of a sudden it looks like a kidnapping squad. (laughs) Right.
0: In light of the last year where we've had, on one end, George Floyd, and how much that had a massive impact across the country, and then we've got the capital insurrection. I mean, are these things changing the nature of protests and demonstrations across the country? I mean, are we heading down a path that's pretty
1: dark? So the two events sort of work at cross purposes from one another. So all the protests in response to George Floyd, you know, the narrative was that the police overresponded and violated people's constitutional rights. And I think in a lot of cases that criticism is, is appropriate. And then in the Capitol insurrection, we see a police department that just dramatically underprepared and under responded. And so the tendency of American police will now be to gear up and adopt harder responses. And, and so, you know, these things are kind of working against each other at the same time that all these class action lawsuits are being litigated over the dramatic over-response to the George Floyd protests. And so things are kind of chaotic in American policing right now. I think police are genuinely struggling with how do we handle these types of events.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that there's just no way to win. You just try to lose with the least amount of damage as you can. And a police commissioner or a police chief may come out of a you know, major public order situation and somebody says, that went pretty well. That chief should buy a lottery ticket, right?
1: <laughs> That's a huge victory. Right. So we've got one coming up in the Phoenix area. We've got the National Socialist Movement, which is a group of neo-Nazis planning a rally here in the Phoenix area. We know it's coming. We know what date it's happening. And hopefully the agencies around here will do a good job of uh, dealing with the intel and processing and putting in place appropriate plans.
0: So I look forward to seeing the one selfie that an officer takes trying to build a rapport with a crowd so it uh, doesn't run into trouble and that will become the defining characteristic of the entire event, right?
1: Agreed, agreed. And hopefully, uh, you know, this time if uh, pepper balls start flying, I'll do a better job of ducking.
0: Yeah, for a ninja warrior, you, uh, you shouldn't be out there head butting pepper balls, mate. <laughs> That's just definitely not the plan. Exactly. <laughs> if people want to know a little bit more about this area beyond the podcast, Ed, Where can they go to?
1: We have a a new lab that we've just stood up at Arizona State University called the Public Safety Innovation Lab. And so people can visit the website for the lab. And also we have a guidebook uh, for policing protests that's available free online. And so they can visit the website for that and and download the guidebook.
0: Fantastic. And I'll put a link to that at reducingcrime.com slash podcast and link it to this episode. Brilliant.
1: What's next for you? Well, my long-term goal is to emulate something that I observed in Britain, which is, I think in Britain, the crowd psychology researchers have formed really amazing partnerships with a variety of different police departments, not only in the UK, but also elsewhere in Europe. and. You know, although I think we have a lot of those partnerships in the United States on a number of different topics, we don't have those partnerships when it comes to how to handle crowds and public order situations. And so I'm envisioning a future where academics have a a, a louder voice um, and are working much more closely with, with police leaders in crafting these responses, testing alternative responses, and just trying to partner to see what works and what doesn't.
0: So invest a little bit more in understanding crowd psychology and evidence-based policing and a little bit less in water cannons.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Well, Ed, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad to see that your eye has recovered and uh, thanks for spending some time with me, mate. Thank
1: you so much, Jerry.
0: That was episode 34 of Reducing Crime recorded online in March, 2021. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime. You can find a transcript of this and every episode at reducingcrime.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to Ed McGuire's policy lab and the protest policing guide mentioned in the episode. If you're an instructor and want multiple choice questions for Reducing Crime episodes, just DM me. Be safe and best of luck.